All right, I think that's it. Let's get to our time of continuing worship, but in the scriptures through preaching. We're looking at Psalm 46. So if you have your sermon insert, it should say the summer psalms, learning the songs of Jesus. Look like this. We arrive at one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 46. As is our custom here, let us stand for the reading of God's word as he addresses us, speaks to us through Psalm 46. To the choir master, of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Ein feste Borg ist unser Gott. I've said that phrase a couple of times in my life, one of them being in this pulpit for a sermon illustration of a different psalm. Ein feste Borg ist unser Gott. A mighty fortress is our God. Pinned by Martin Luther in uh, 1529, that is the Martin Luther who launched the 16th century Reformation in Wittenberg, Germany, when he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And that sparked discussion and debate regarding the unjust practices and theology of the Roman Catholic Church of his day. Today in Wittenberg... Still on the tall tower of the church there, standing 300 feet high, 290 feet to be exact. The tower of the church reads, Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott, looking over the land. That phrase, that sentence, you can find it all over Wittenberg and all over Luther country, and it has played a vital role in German history as well as human history. English history. That phrase, that song, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was sung as armies went into battle to give them faith, to bolster their confidence. Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott was sung at the funeral of Dwight Eisenhower. It was one of the main songs that was played in a a funeral service or a prayer service, if you will, commemorating 9-11 on September 14th. 2001. 
It even made its way into The Simpsons. Well, there's well over 80 translations and versions of the song in English alone. The song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was written from Psalm 46. And our friends and sister cousin denominations that sing the psalms, some of them exclusively, some of those groups without music, will sing Psalm 46 to the tune of Ein Feste Burgest und Sergat. It has had a huge impact. And we will respond in song this morning with a mighty fortress is our God. And those are not simply words. It's not simply all oh, interesting thoughts. You know, mighty fortresses are God. It's not ethereal, distant theology, but it's actually extremely practical, as I hope to make clear this morning. The context of Luther pinning that song and the psalmist pinning this psalm was trouble. Distress, anxiety, fear, and danger. And Psalm 46 looks in the face of trouble and encourages those of us singing it or praying it toward a radical confidence in God. No matter what's going on in our life, no matter what life throws at us, maybe it's the earth giving way. Radical confidence. So if I had to summarize my argument this morning or wanted to put one point forward to you to keep in mind, it would be this, that the presence of God calms the people of God in the midst of all upheaval and distress. God's presence, the presence of God, calms us, the people of God, or I should say it ought to calm us in the midst of upheaval and distress. So to examine that argument, if you will, to examine Psalm 46, I have three points for us. They're basically corresponding to the three selahs in Psalm 46. The first one I get from verses 1 through 3, God's presence in upheaval. Secondly, God's power in distress, verses 4 through 7. And finally, we're going to see God's strength over a warring world in verses 8 through 11. So first, God's presence in upheaval. Again, getting this from verses 1 through 3, which we'll read again in just a moment. But first, I want to point something out that's probably painfully known to you already. We are a fearful people. We're an anxious people. And to some degree, I, I feel this in my bones. I'm not preaching at anyone. I have no one in mind. My heart is also just as fearful as the next. But it does strike me that we are more fearful today when we ought not be. We're safer today than we've ever been, generations past, and peoples around the globe right now. Literally, we have doors. Those are somewhat new in history. We, we have a number of reasons to be less stressful, less fearful, less anxious than generations past and peoples elsewhere, and yet we are crushing it in fear. I'll just quote Dr. Frank Fioretti. This is a quote Roger has used a, a number of times here at New City. He's not a believer, to my knowledge, and he's written a, a seminal work called How Fear Works, The Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, and he says this, quote, Why Americans fear more when they have far less to fear than in other moments in the past? is a question that puzzles numerous scholars. 
One argument used to explain this paradox of a safe society is that prosperity encourages people to become more risk and loss averse. Our prosperity, in many ways, has made you, made me, more fearful, more anxious, because we don't want to lose our stuff. We're fearful people. I'm a fearful man. Worried, anxious. Now, fear is not a new thing, so don't get me wrong here. It's commanded against over 300 times in Scripture. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Those, weren't, those aren't options. Do not be anxious about anything. All over the Bible. But we are indeed a more fearful people than generations past. Anxiety is at all-time high. Prescription medicine for those things at an all-time high. And I'm not commenting on why that is, and I know there's a number of various things that go into that circumstance, chemical and otherwise, but I do simply want to come alongside and say, I think God wants to speak to it a little bit. Psalm 46 has something for us in that vein, and it's this, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. The word refuge there is describing a defense. Think of like a fortress, a, a stronghold. It's speaking defensively. You're in the refuge. You're safe. Specifically, it was often speaking of being safe from the elements, the storm, thunder, and lightning. You're safe, but it also spoke of enemies. Think of like an uh, unable-to-penetrate place. You're safe in the refuge. And, oh, the psalmist will use a different word later. In verses 7 and 11, do you see it? The last word of those verses, 7 and 11, fortress. It's a different word, but just continuing to pound home that truth. And this one is getting at like a high tower, like a really tall thing, like that you're up in and the the bad guys and the, the bad gals can't get to you. Untouchable. God is our refuge, but he's not just a defensive, like protect you from the outside world. Look at the next phrase. He's our refuge and strength. Most commentators point out that this is now speaking of the offensive. We're now going on the attack. He's not just our refuge from all the scary things, but he's also the one who strengthens us to act, to do things. And they're both summarized in that amazing phrase. The parallel to God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Literally, he's exceedingly present and there. This is a phrase that's emphasizing this beautiful reality, friends. It's talking about this, God's readiness to be found when we look for him. God's readiness, his eagerness to be found when we seek him, when we ask. So from the outset of this psalm, these verses are holding out comfort for God's people. He is present with you. He will be at lunch and he will be at dinner. He will be tomorrow. He will be on Friday. He will be when you're coming out of a trial. He will be when you're going into one. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson has often said that all of life is summarized in this, that you're either going into a trial, you're in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. And if that is true, and unfortunately I kind of think it is, at least it's been my experience, God is with you. He is there. 
We use Psalm 23 as our call to worship. You know the famous verse there, that we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We're not told that we're going to avoid that path. I'm going to go up and around. I'm going to miss the valley of the shadow of death. We're not, we're not promised, friends, a life of ease, painless, comfort. But what we are promised is even more beautiful, that wherever we are in this life, in the valley or on the top of the mountain, going into trial, out of trial, or in the midst of one, God is present, exceedingly present. He's there. He's with us. He's our defensive refuge, and he's empowering us to take the next step even when our strength fails. But note this also. This is awesome. God isn't holding something else out to us. Notice the verse isn't, God gives lots of things to be our refuge and strength. God provides tools to be our strength. Who, who or what is the refuge? God himself. He himself is the refuge, the strength, the very present help. He's not holding out a tool to assist us. He's not distant on the throne, lobbing down lifelines. Figure it out on your own. Here's a power-up. He's saying, I'm the help. I'm the refuge. I am the strength. You don't get the help, the refuge, the presence without me. And this is seen most clearly in the incarnation of Christ. Where do we see God becoming increasingly, beautifully present to us, Jesus of Nazareth. When the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became Jesus of Nazareth, the one who spoke the universe into existence, and yet on that day he was born, cried like a babe in the mother's arms. The one who, while in the cradle, was upholding the universe. Present. Refuge, strength, our Jesus who became like us to reconcile humanity and God. God and man together. Verse 2, therefore, we will not fear. We will not fear. There, even though the earth gives way, the mountains be moved into the sea. This is apocalyptic language. This is catastrophe we may have stuff in our lives, but maybe the earth's not giving way and mountains are falling on you. Or maybe it feels like that. The picture the psalmist is giving us is extremely grim. There's little hope. And if I were to ask you, what are a couple things that are immovable? Maybe you would say the earth, that massive mountain. And the psalmist is saying, I'm going to take both of those and I'm going to move the mess out of them. The earth itself is giving way. Mountains are crumbling and sliding into the sea. Some of the most sizable objects that we think stable, immovable, impregnable are being moved, are breaking. It's very likely he's even seeing real earthquakes. Landslides of mountains falling into the sea and tsunamis wiping out the land chaos. He's compounding this grim picture with waters in verse 3. 
waters in Scripture, especially when it speaks of the sea, is used as a biblical picture of chaotic disorder. You don't, you don't want it. You didn't go out there. It is chaos. It's disorder. It's upheaval. And look, the waters are roaring and foaming. It's like the chaos is chaotic. Uber unsettledness. That's the context. So the question is, what are you going to do with it? If that's true, but in the midst of all of that going on, we're being told that the people of God will not fear. What is your hope? What is, is your hope when the earth that is your life is moved into the sea? What do you say when tsunamis and the waters of chaos are threatening to destabilize you? Where do you go when the permanent marriage till death do us part faces an end? Your great health that you've worked so hard for crumbles. The phone call comes that changes everything. The job that was so steady and secure, I'll have it forever, is taken away. Fear sets in of your immortality, that you're going to close your eyes and someday you won't, wait, you won't open them back up. The heart stops beating. The fear that actually you don't control that much no matter how hard you try. Your kid wanders from, wanders from the faith. Or that dreadful sentence, life is not what I thought it'd be. You're a third of the way done, halfway done, three quarters of the way, maybe almost done, and you're like, I did not think it would go this way. What is, what is your hope? Where, where, what do you do with that? I certainly don't have all the answers, but I do know, friends, that if we're not, if our first inclination is not in the rock-solid foundation that God is with us in all of those things, friend, you are in for heartache, pain, disappointment, anxiety, and maybe, God forbid, though, even despair. God, Psalm 46 says, is our refuge, our strength. He is the supply of power. He is the safety. He himself. Run to your refuge. Be empowered and strengthened by Jesus. Because it's in him, as I've already hinted at, that we see this most clearly. But not just in his incarnation, which I've already mentioned, but in the cross. Where do we see God being a refuge and a present help for us? It's in the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross in your place. Absorbing the punishment for your sin, my sin, in time. Satisfying the justice of God so we can be forgiven of all sin and ushered into eternal life. So we can be made sons and daughters and spared from all future wrath to come. That's good news. There's our refuge and strength. If he can do that for you, for me, we can trust him with our, with our wallet, our bank account, my car that keeps having that darn check engine light come back on, with your future, 
your debt, your good, your bad, your ugly. Come to Jesus, who is gentle and lowly. The second piece of the psalm is God's power in distress. So the, she, the, the scene shifts from the chaos of the world into the city of God. So I'm going to move uh, quickly by basically punting and saying this psalm was preached almost a year ago. In April of 2021, we used Psalm 20, uh, 46 in a sermon series on Sabbath, on rest, one of the marks of the Reformed faith. One of the, the distinctives of Presbyterianism was that we rest one in seven, that we take seriously the Sabbath, to stop. So if you want to understand a little bit of what's going on here, like the word streams, I think it's a beautiful picture of, of a city to come. It's not actually talking about the earthly city of God, which is Jerusalem. It doesn't have a, a stream in it. So I would uh, just go listen to Roger. Roger on that. Don't you like how I did that? Just take that and just go, go listen to that sermon. Roger does a really good job with that. But the point of this middle section of Psalm 46 is that God is with his city. That is emblematic of the people of God. God is especially present with his crew, with his family. And he is so in the midst of things going wrong around us, including people and nations against us. Look at verse 6. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. The, the, the nations are raging. I mentioned last week that Psalms 1 and 2 serve as an introduction of the whole Psalter. It is very common for Psalms later to be reaching back and picking up on themes introduced in Psalm 1 and 2. Oh, one example is the word streams. It's the same word from Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and all his law he meditates day and light. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Same word. This phrase here, the, the, the nation's rage, comes from Psalm 2. We see a, a king of the earth setting himself against Yahweh, and against Yahweh's king, and against Yahweh's people. Kings of the world set themselves against the Lord. The nations rage, friends. The unbelieving population around us and around the globe doesn't like God if the Spirit of God is not made them the people of God. Even the good people. I've got them in my life. They don't like Jesus. They don't like a Christian worldview, but they're, they're nice. They're put together. They're raging against the king. And I, I'm a little depressed at it, to say the least. But the unbelieving people that are against Jesus, that are not team Jesus, do not have a bright future in the scriptures. We don't have evidence in the Bible of a glorified picture of societies, systems, magistrates outside the church I'm just I'm just saying it how it is and so don't be surprised friends of new city when the nations rage when policies are put in place against biblical worldviews don't be surprised what should surprise you is when Roe v Wade is reversed that's surprising don't be surprised when the nations rage. Don't be taken aback when people scold you for biblical beliefs. 
The nations rage. It's happened to all of our brothers and sisters through time. We are the weird ones that have peace. Don't be surprised, disheartened when you're mocked for believing in a God who created all things, for the sinfulness of mankind, for the redemption that's offered through Christ alone, and the reality that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Don't be surprised when you're mocked for that. The nations rage against God. Don't be surprised when marriage is redefined. It's no longer between one man and one woman. Don't be surprised at the radical individualism in our society. Don't be surprised when personhood is altered and the definition of what it means to be a person is changed. The nations rage. The kings of this earth around us set themselves against God, even if they set themselves against God through being morally good and upright. The scriptures hold out to us that you're either following Jesus and resting in him alone or you're raging against God. Don't be surprised. And this psalm gives us a little window. What what is the future then? What is the, the future of these raging nations, these peoples setting themselves against Yahweh? Well, look at verse 6. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He, that's speaking now back to the antecedent God, utters his voice. The earth melts. I'm always struck by that. It's, it's the word of God that goes forth and defeats the enemies. If you want a biblical picture of this, I want to read later. Revelation 19, the second half, talks about Christ's return. And he's pictured on a, on a white steed, and he's clothed in white. His robes are dipped in blood, and he's coming with an army to defeat all of the raging nations. And he gets there, and before the battle begins, he speaks, and they all die. It's his word pictured with a sword coming out of his mouth. I quoted him last week, but a Psalms scholar named Jim Hamilton in his commentary on Psalms says this. I love this. God's vowels, consonants, syllables, lexemes, phrases, syntactical constructions, and sentences Cause things like protons and neutrons to form atoms and atoms to form molecules and the power of God's almighty utterance, the earth and universe spring into being. The same utterance that caused that to congeal will cause them to dissolve. Done. And that is God's power in distress. That is God's power on display for us. A creational power, an undoing and melting power. And friends, this is the, the, maybe the craziest thing from Romans 8 that I'm having the students of New City memorize. We're told that the Spirit of God, that very Spirit who does all of that, is the same Spirit in you. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And he will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit dwelling in you. But, although that's going to happen, what is the end of these warring, distress-causing nations? Verse 8 through 11, my third point, where we're going to see God's strength over a warring world. Look at verse 8. This is the end. Come and behold the works of the Lord. It's almost like this invitation. Come here. Check this out. God has brought desolations on the earth. 
Well, what is that? What, what are the desolations? Come here, look. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns chariots with fire. The raging nations are easily, but utterly and finally and ultimately laid waste. God is victorious. And so the psalmist is saying, chill out. Calm down. And the victory for those of us who are standing on this side of the cross, having progressive revelation as it's unfolded throughout the years, reaching its climax in Jesus Christ, we see that God's strength over our warring world has been won in the first and the second coming of Jesus. Jesus' first coming as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth, living and dying and rising in our place and for our sins, for all who would trust in Him to be adopted as sons and daughters. The, the war was done then. Jesus won. He disarmed the enemies and the rulers of this world. But there's coming a day that is yet future to us, his second coming, where he's not coming as the lamb, but he's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah to finally and utterly put an end to all rebellion, all raging, all setting themselves against Christ. So, breathe. Relax. Why are we spinning? Why are we toiling like hamsters on a wheel? Chill out. That's exactly what the psalm tells us next. Look at verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I love this verse. Oh, it's a little misunderstood though. So, you've likely heard this. Be still and know that I'm God. Maybe you've got a coffee cup with it on, maybe a t-shirt. It's in, for some reason, it's always in pictures in the bathroom. So maybe they're saying something. <laughs> Relax. Be still. But you, you've probably read it, and I have too, that it's like a, ah. Uh, Chill, bro. Relax. Be still. Know that I'm God. That's not at all what's going on. That's not the verse. The verse is a command to the bad guys and bad girls. It's talking to the nations. Stop. Enough. You're fighting. You're warring. You've set yourself against the king. Zip it. Be still. Enough's enough. It echoes another phrase. When our King Jesus is in a boat with the disciples and there's raging waters, and he says, peace, be still. And it listens. It's like uh, my, my son, uh, Luke, is three. You guys have probably seen him around. He's a bruiser. He's thick. Um, but he thinks he can beat me up. He thinks he can take me. So even this weekend, we're wrestling, going at it, and he's sweating bullets, just trying to get at me, and I'm just laughing. He's cackling. It's great. I'll play along with him like if he'll punch me, and I'll pretend like it was so hard. But what am I doing as he's, he's just trying to swing at me and get me? Just one hand holding him at bay. Easy. One finger. And when dinner is ready, you better believe Daddy's going to cut it. Make an end of this. We're, we're going to put an end to the wrestling real quick. Be still. And I end the wrestling match real quick. Because I am infinitely, one might say, stronger than three-year-old Luke. 
That is the picture of God with these warring and raging nations around him. Stop. I've let you fight me enough, but now's the time, now's the day, this is over. You are subdued. Now, I do think, although this is a, a, a phrase to the nations, right? Stop, cease. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I do think there's an application for us. But it's still not like, ah, oh, warm and fuzzies, be still. It's more so like this, seeing him dominate, and we're like, whoa. The wow factor. Uh, I'm sure there's a number of illustrations out here, but have you, for, have you ever experienced like someone earthly appear even, like do something really cool, and you're like, oh, that's cool. For some reason, I only have sports illustrations, but being a high school basketball player, I would often play against other people who were way better than me. And there were a few times where I was playing against like professional basketball players from overseas, and I was pretty good back in the glory days. Um, but whoa, can some boys hoop? You're playing against them, and you're like, wow, I'm not very good. That kind of difference of of the Lord coming, saying, be still, peace. Nations, you're done fighting. You just lost. We are looking on that and saying, whoa. I'm on holy ground here. And that one says, you're my son, you're my daughter, come on. We can relax. Because God is our refuge and strength, because he's our fortress, because he strengthens us, because he's exceedingly present, he's also, I didn't mention this, 7 and 11, the Lord of hosts. The word host there, I don't know if you've used that this week. It's talking about armies. Angel armies, unseen to our eyes, are at the command of God. So why are we so anxious about tomorrow? Why are we so ashamed of yesterday? God's our refuge, strength, present help in trouble. So I'll conclude with this. There's one final takeaway. This is a a drum that I beat often, not just because I oversee community groups, but because it's all over the scriptures. That God makes you, he saves you to make you a people. The lone wolf Christian, the island Christian does not exist. It ought not exist. You might be making it exist. And you might be covering it in the shroud of, I'm an introvert. But, and I, and I relate, I, I can, I feel introverted tendencies myself. But friends, if we're using it as an excuse, we're missing that for which we've been saved and unto what we have been saved. And it's no different in this psalm. This psalm is a communal psalm. All the verbs, the pronouns, the action are y'all verbs. It's us together. God is our refuge and strength. He saved you and made you a people. He's made you a family. Our strength is in God together. It's a together promise. And as a matter of fact, you might be the means through which somebody else comes to the understanding that God is our refuge and strength. Community groups are a practical first way to experience that here, but it goes deeper. It's just it's more so about being around other Christians. There's a number of you in this service and in first service who meet together regularly for Bible study and to pray. 
gathering on Sunday morning, making that vitally important, one-on-one Bible studies. We're called to be a people, a family, a body. You may have grown up watching the Peanuts cartoons. Think of like Charlie Brown. There's one episode, and you can see this clip on YouTube, actually, I confirmed. It strikes me as, as helpful. Lucy comes into the room, demands that Linus change the TV channel. Maybe that sounds like a normal day in your life. Lucy threatens her to use her fist if Linus is not compliant. Also, maybe a normal day in your life. It is in mine. Uh, Lucy, uh, Linus replies, what makes you think you can march in here and demand that? He says something like, who are you to just come in here and take over? Lucy says, these five fingers, individually they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon terrible to behold. Linus says, what channel do you want? gets up to change the channel. But then there's this little aside when he changes the channel. He looks at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? (laughs) Individually, one Christian is limited in what he or she can accomplish, friends. But together, when joined together in community as a body, we form a weapon that's terrible to behold. There is power in community, in the giving and receiving of life-sustaining, faith-bolstering words. The problem is actually in our tendency toward individuality and toward independence. The problem and the lie of our day and age is that your individuality and your independence will kill you. God is our refuge and strength, y'all. It's with that promise and knowing that he is our fortress. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth so we can be blown away by his power. And that knowing that he is exceedingly present, that we go to the table. We're coming to the table of Jesus, the Lord's table. Where we are in one sense looking back to what he's done for us in the cross and resurrection. And yes, we often look at this meal and look ahead to when we'll be with him forever, when faith is made sight and we feast on more than just a little bread and a couple ounces of juice, but when we are with him forever. But in between those two poles, there's a present. Not a present, but the the present. When we are made a family, this is a y'all meal. Those who know Jesus is our refuge and our strength. He is very present and he's here to be for you. And you're not alone in it. You're going to the table as a family, as a people that were once not a people who have been made a people through Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you as we go to the table, look around. You're in a line. Look behind you. Look at the people. You you are in a family. This is a meal, friends, to be encouraged by faith. We are going to meet with Jesus in a special and unique way, spiritually through faith, as we trust in him Fresh Here at New City, we say that this is a meal not for perfect people, but for honest people. We recognize our sin, see our brokenness and rebellion, but we see a greater Savior who's more gracious than our sin. And so if that is you, that you are, you are resting in Jesus alone for salvation, 
pursuing him to the best of your ability, even as broken as it is, you are welcome to come to this meal. The way we do it at New City was you'll get up and you'll come from the outside and you'll go receive bread and red wine or white grape juice and then you'll return to your seats through the middle aisles. What we'll do is you'll hold on to them and we'll partake together. So let me pray for us and those serving can go ahead and take their places. Let's go to our God who is our refuge and strength. Lord, our Father, Son, and Spirit, our God who is three in one, I pray that you would continue to preach this psalm. I've put my energy into this, Lord, but it is so incomplete. It barely scratches the surface of how beautiful the reality that you are our refuge and strength. You have made us a people. So, Lord, you are the God of angel armies, the God of people like Jacob, but you are our fortress. So be that fortress. Be exceedingly present now as we come to your table and by faith lay hold of you, lay hold of the promises that you extend to us in the gospel. Jesus, be glorified. In your name I pray. Amen. Friends, when you're prepared, receive the elements and return to your seat with them.